0: Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 169. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we first of all want to give thanks and praise to you for answered prayer. We had specific um, prayer requests that we were uh, uh, asking of you last week concerning um, people in our communities who were ill, people who are experiencing COVID, people who are experiencing other illnesses, and you have answered our prayers, and you have brought those individuals back to health, and though they are still recovering, we have every expectation that they're going to make full recoveries, and so we thank you for your your mercy and your kindness and your compassion uh, to us as a people. Continue, Lord, to carry us along by your Spirit. Help us to um, have a fruitful study tonight, help us to have a supernatural retention for the words that are going to be spoken, and we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory of Yeshua. Omain. Thank you once again for joining me week after week for the Live Internet Studies. Um, My name is Ben Lyman Hanavi, and we're starting a brand new study. This is uh, February the 5th, 2022, and the new study is entitled, An Examination of Matthew 9, 14-17, colon... Are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? And it's a question mark. So the study is either going to be referenced to either the, the Matthew 9.14 study or Judaism v. Christianity, something like that. I haven't figured out what the shortened version is. Otherwise, that 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 complete title is kind of a mouthful. But this is a study I wrote um, fairly recently. I mean, uh, 2015 is when I final put the final... Um, uh, uh, final, uh, uh, edits to it. Um, meaning I wrote it while I was here in Korea and it's, um, it's a study I've never taught yet. I've never taught this live. I've never made a, uh, never, uh, uh, created an, a podcast out of it or anything like that. So this will be my first time through. It's not an exceptionally long study. If you um, click on the, the uh, if you go to my website, which I'll tell you about here in a moment, and were to click on the link, I think you'll find that the uh, the PDF version is only something like 15, 16, 17. So it's less than 20 pages. So it's, it's, a, it's a short study by my standards. So um, I hope it will be a beneficial study for those of you who are able to follow along with the study. I also don't envision that it's going to take, you know, a Year or two, like like my Roman study or my Galatian study, or anything like that, you know, being much shorter. I'm envisioning um, a few months, uh, something like that. So, uh, but we'll see how it goes. Um, you can find the study online at com. That's spelled out T E T Z E T O R A H dot com. And from the homepage of my study, there's a cluster of links near the upper right corner and they're alphabetized and you just find the link that says um, an examination of Matthew 9 14 through 17. Something like that. And then click on it and then this is the page you'll land on that you're seeing on your screen right now. And let's go quickly through the table of contents and look at um, the sections that we're going to be talking about. We'll, um, first be, uh, talking about the introduction and replacement theology. Replacement theology is going to, um, be one of the major themes of the paper itself. From there, we'll move to an example from some well known Christian pastors, um, and commentators. Most of the people on the list are what I call A-listers. They're, 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 well-known, high visibility, um, and my purpose for bringing them into my study was to utilize um, resources that are not only well-known and well-respected, but uh, easily accessible. So I don't want people to try and scour the internet and try and figure out where did I pull these sources from. I want you to see that I'm using resources that are uh, easy to find for, for just about everybody who's in Christian circles. So we have an example from uh, Pastor John Piper. That, that'll be our first um, example. Moving down the list, that you can see, of the topics on my li- on my uh, screen here, we'll then next look at an example from gotquestions.org, which is a very no- well-known uh, QA resource site. has thousands of answers to Bible questions and things like that. From there, we'll look at an example from Pastor John MacArthur. He's one of my uh, longtime Christian favorites, uh, Christian authors, uh, and resources. Very highly respected in the Christian community. Uh, from there, we'll move to an example from Pastor David, I think his name is pronounced Guzik. Guzik, with a kind of a long U there. I've heard some people say Guzik, but I think it's Guzik. Pastor David Guzik, also a very well-known uh, Bible teacher resource has commentaries on every book of the bible just like pastor john macarthur as well so i always like having resources where you can turn to any book of the bible and pull notes from their uh teachings that's really really good next we'll look at um a topic known as the old man the new man and messianic judaism in this particular study on matthew and then um from there, we'll move to a topic known as, a, or a, a, a heading, called a better way to understand this passage. Of course, according to my own research, research resources and research, um, there probably be some difference of agreement. Uh, if you listen to my commentary, I mean, that's to be understood. Everyone has their own bias. It's impossible to get away from that. And then finally, we'll move to a summary of the whole study, and then my concluding thoughts for the study itself. So that's the study uh, in a snapshot, in an overview. As you can see, if you visit the commentary online to the Matthew 9, 14 through 17 study that we're gonna be um, undergoing, then each one of those chapters or topical sections is a link. So for now, let's just click on the first one and it'll drop us right down into the webpage into Introduction and Replacement Theology. So let's just get started. I'll just navigate through the study, reading along, pausing only when I need to uh, clarify, but other than that, it's pretty self explanatory. You guys ready? Here we go. Have you ever heard of the teaching known as replacement theology? Replacement theology. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. Um, If you haven't, sit back and I'll explain it to you. I asked the second question Have you ever been taught to understand? that the church has replaced Israel as God's chosen people. And then I say, As Tevye, the milkman of Fiddler on the Roof, would say, Sounds ridiculous. No? Alright, that's my poor imitation of Tevye. If you've ever seen the musical Fiddler on the Roof, um, you recall that the main uh, character of the story is this father, this um, kind of ordinary Jewish man by the name of uh, Reb Tevye. And uh, it's a story about how he and his family experience all of the ups and downs of what it's like to live as a Jewish person in a certain time period gone by. It's, it's I can't remember the exact era that it's um, connected to. But throughout the story, he's constantly having these uh, soliloquy moments where he's talking to the viewers, and then he's also talking to God at the same time. And so um, earlier on in the movie... Uh, or the, the, the musical movie, he, he asks it's kind of all these kind of questions about tradition, you know, when he, he says things like, you know, sounds ridiculous. No? Okay. So, uh, it's a very nice movie slash musical. I highly recommend it. It's a little older. It's kind of dated, but um, I'm sure you can probably find it at your local uh, movie outlet there. All right, let's keep going through my commentary. However... Unfortunately, this type of teaching, what we're going to be talking about, it does exist and actually thrives in some Christian circles. As ridiculous as Teviah might say it sounds that God has replaced Israel with the church, as ridiculous as that idea might sound to some of you, it actually does exist. This is not a straw man theology that I'm creating that doesn't really exist. This is not a... Um, uh, an imaginary scenario that you were playing make believe like Mr. Rogers or something like that. Um, this is the real deal. It really does exist. I ask the question where would a Christian get such a peculiar viewpoint? I say peculiar because I mean, if you think about the history of God in Israel and the place that Israel enjoys in not just the Bible itself that we carry around as Christians, but in the plans and the purposes that have been spelled out in the Bible, particularly with Israel and through Israel, I mean, this is really peculiar that any Christian would come to this particular perspective. I say my commentary, and if God is done with Israel as a people... Does this mean that once a Jewish person, I put Jewish in brackets there because really it's anyone, but particularly a Jewish person, once they abandon their old incomplete ways of understanding God and once they come to faith in Jesus, does this mean that his association with things Torah must likewise be abandoned? Is this what replacement theology is trying to imply? Is that if God has replaced israel with the church right he swapped out people groups he took israel out of the picture and put put the church into the picture then if there's no room for israel or no room for uh, a judaism which we're going to talk about in this commentary then um what happens to jewish people who do come to faith in jesus what is their expected response? What, what lifestyle should they be leading, right? How should they be conduct, uh, conducting themselves? Let's keep reading. For example, I say in my commentary, must Judaism and a Jewish person's cultural identification with being Jewish give way to Christianity and leading a noticeably uh, Christian, quote-unquote, lifestyle? Instead, understand the the nature of my question? Um, We know from history that in times past, this is unfortunate, but it does exist. It did exist. I don't believe it it exists now. But we had Jewish people coming into a faith and knowledge of Jesus as the Messiah. And under that um, circumstance, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, those Jewish people were... Um, asked to perform some action to prove that they had left Judaism behind as the old religion and embraced Christianity as their new religion. For instance, um, Jewish people were asked to eat a piece of pork or um, something that would normally be forbidden by Jewish people or unkosher. So not kosher by Uh, Biblical standards, and thus this was kind of like their litmus test that that they were passing to prove to their their new Christian community that hey, I'm one of you now. I'm no longer to be counted as a Jew. Please count me as a Christian. Of course, this doesn't happen in modern Christian um, conversions from for Jewish people anymore um, because we've realized we as Christianity have realized the error of that uh, type of. You know test or whatever you want to call it, um, the insensitivity of that whole that whole idea, but it's a shame that that would even have uh, been allowed to take place in the first place. I could google search that uh, uh instance maybe we'll talk about it a different day, but not today let's keep going in my commentary in essence, I say this would mean if if this were the case where a Jewish person was being asked or kind of. Coerced or forced uh, to undergo this type of, um, you know, verification process, whatever. In essence, I this would, I say that this would mean the death of living as a religious Jew. Right? Am I right? I mean, if you're talking about the lifestyle that Jewish people live, complete with all of its um, uh, association with things Torah. Law of Moses, um, Jewish tradition, synagogue lifestyle, um, festival, uh, uh, attendance, um, you know, kosher keeping and things like that. Uh, not to mention all of the outward appearances that make people resemble uh someone who leads a jewish lifestyle such as the you know wearing of a of a yarmulke or a kippah, um the wearing of um tzitzit or tassels fringes on your garments um the uh for ultra orthodox jews or things like that the wearing of of certain black and white outfits and things like that so there are there are noticeable visible um community um dress uh Uh, styles and things like that that are associated with jewish lifestyle even if those things are rooted in tradition and not necessarily rooted in the text they're still part of jewish life living jewish lifestyle so if a person were to say convert and claim to believe in jesus and become a christian would they have to forego and give up that um outward lifestyle would they have to change the way they look to other people Those are some of the questions we're not going to really answer. The purpose of this study is not to answer all of those types of cultural and sociological questions. The purpose of this study is more theological. Um, We're going to examine a passage in the book of Matthew, um, and we're going to ask um, questions based on modern interpretations of the passage and see if those interpretations are really in line with perhaps the ancient, understanding of the passage itself since it's in the gospels book of matthew it's likely of course that we're going to be working from yeshua's words so those are some of the the, um uh, issues we're going to be looking at i continue my commentary matt slick of carm which is christian apologetics and resource uh, uh christian apologetics and research ministry yeah i think that's it r stands for research uh um, which, in my opinion, is a fine Christian apologetics website at uh, karm.org. They define replacement theology thusly. So let's get our running definition of this term, replacement theology, before we go much further in the study. So for those of you who are not familiar, replacement theology, this is uh, Matt Slick. Replacement theology is the teaching that the Christian church has replaced national Israel regarding the plan, purpose, purpose and promises of God. Thus its title replacement theology. Now most Christians would probably not word it in that exact terminology they wouldn't go around saying hey have you heard the news the christian church has replaced national israel in regards to god's plans purposes and promises okay that's probably not the way that you're going to hear it spelled out however however if you have a well-meaning conversation with a well-meaning pastor or christian and you listen to um their perspective on where does Israel fit in, in the grand scheme of things? Or if you ask the question, who is Israel? Who is the church? And what are the differences? Then you'll probably hear some, uh, sentiments that give you the impression as a listener that replacement theology has influenced their way of thinking. That replacement theology is probably, um, um, maybe not out and in your face in their theology, in their particular Christian denomination, but perhaps has some strongholds or footholds in certain pockets of theology within their particular denomination. So that's probably what would really happen if you have this type of conversation. I see my commentary. Therefore, this is of course again quoting Karm, therefore many of the promises that God made to Israel must be spiritualized. After all, face value, if you read through the Tanakh, your Old Testament, and you find that God is over and over through the prophets making uh, statements and promises and pledges to Israel, hey, I'm going to do this for you. Hang in there. Have faith in me. I'm going to perform this work for you in the future, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Glorious promises of future, and yet if... If midway through God's plan with Israel, he decided to swap out the people groups, right, the recipients of the promises, you know, kind of like a bait and switch sort of thing, well, then suddenly we either have to A, say that God was lying or the Bible is unreliable, or B, we come up with some other um, interpretation to those promises and prophecies. And spiritualization has been the popular way of answering all those um, nagging issues that would arise if we simply just dismissed Israel part and parcel. Understand what I mean? It allows us to, quote-unquote, as Christians, have our cake and eat it too. We can say that the Bible is reliable, God is trustable, and the words are true, and yet Israel is not really the main focus of those words. Uh, Karm continues, for example, when the Bible particularly the Tanakh, when it speaks of Israel being restored to the land, right? so we're talking about the prophecies of old, according to spiritualization, this really means that the Christian church will be blessed in whatever land they find themselves. So the land of Israel becomes some type of spiritual land of promise in the minds of those who use this type of um, heavy-handed um uh, replacement theology, spiritualization of the scriptures, etc., etc., and allegorizing and things like that. Let's continue. Karm reminds us that also covenants made with Israel are fulfilled in the Christian church. So, for example, and then he gives uh, he gives some bullet points or a number points, four of them. Let's just look at these real quick. The first point, uh, these are in no particular order, and this is certainly not an exhaustive list, but if you take the idea that um replacement theology is accurate or that god has replaced israel you know if you if you look at the state of israel today and you know, scratch your head and wonder why they for the most part have rejected yeshua and god's ultimate promise of salvation as a people group and you're then you're left wondering well how can these promises in the tanakh ever be realized by these people who are so backward and wayward and stubborn and stiff-necked and and, and hard-hearted right i mean how could god continue along that path of blessing such a people group well If you're using replacement theology and spiritualization, then these um, number of points that we're going to be looking at are going to be um, uh, topics that you have to kind of process as you're reading through your Bible. Point number one, brought up by Karm. The Jewish people are no longer God's chosen people. Instead, the Christian church now makes up God's chosen people. So this is, like he says, um, uh, the reality... Of those people who go with the replacement theology model, who believe that the church have replaced Israel. Fortunately, by the way, we can kind of skip ahead uh, through some of the bad news, and we can say that fortunately, many people in Christian circles have abandoned this type of theology, this replacement theology model, this particular um, uh, interpretation of scripture, has been largely um, Abandoned, set aside, challenged, disproven, uh, by many, uh, well-meaning Christians. Um, and I say that's good news. That is good news. Unfortunately, um, it has not been completely, um, Abandoned. It hasn't been completely, uh, you know, dismantled, and so there are still kind of what you might call strongholds or vestiges or remnants, um, latent uh, traces of this type of theology that still exists in many, well-meaning Christian circles. So let's keep reading through Karm's um, uh, point points or point number two. If you're holding to the replacement theology model, then according to Karm, in the New Testament after Pentecost, right Acts chapter two. After Pentecost, the term Israel refers to the Church, and so if you're going to be reading through the Bible through the lens of replacement theology, even if you're not kind of in your face calling it God replaced Israel with the Church, even if you're not saying that outright, so that because of the offensive nature of that type of kind of statement, that inflammatory statement of God replaced Israel, right? Think about how Jewish people would feel if you just walked up and knocked on their door and. Told me, hey, have you heard the news? God, uh, replaced Israel with the church, right? Israel's out, the church is in. Um, that certainly wouldn't go too well, uh, go over too well in the, in the, uh, cancel culture, um, society in which we live today, right? You know, um, you'd have all kinds of lawsuits and things like that. But again, keep in mind that replacement theology is more of a kind of, um, it's almost like a, um, a sleeper theology these days. It's, it still exists. I'm borrowing like a terminology of making up words, sleeper theology, sleeper agent, sleeper theology. It's this, this type of thinking and, and, and mindset still exists in, in some like especially long-established church denominations who've been around for for quite some time and are not keen to changing the way they uh, interpret the Bible, particularly those who are not on board with adopting any type of um, notion that if we acknowledge Israel's place in God's plans and covenants, does that mean that we have to admit that we were wrong? in our historical understanding of who israel was in the grand scheme of god right people don't like to change they don't want to admit that they're wrong and they don't want to um uh change and have to adopt um you know measures that would allow uh, other people to come in and claim um land that was currently staked out by them you know hey if we if we as the church Overtook Israel in the place of, of God's plans, but we find out a hundred of years later that we were wrong. Well, then now we have to give that land back, as it were. To kind of use that analogy. So that's kind of where I'm going with that um, uh, question. The third point that Karm brings up is that. If you're holding to a replacement theology interpretation of the Bible, well then, the Mosaic Covenant, as in Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the ten words at Mount Sinai, that covenant is altogether replaced by what you would call the New Testament, or the New Covenant, uh, reference Luke 22.20. We're going to be talking about this New Covenant as outlined in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Repeated for us in Hebrews 8, 8 through I think about around verse 12. And we're going to look at that as part of our liturgy. So stick around in the live study all the way through to the liturgy and we'll um, reference this New Covenant and talk a little bit more about that. And then finally, Karm says in their short bullet-pointing uh, definition of replacement theology, they talk about that if this is the the viewpoint that you hold to—that the church replaced Israel—well, then in your mind, it's likely that actual circumcision or physical circumcision for males is replaced by a circumcision of the heart. Reference Romans. 229. So, in your mind, God no longer requires physical circumcision of his people. Instead, the requirement to be a people of God is heart circumcision. And so, notice that in each case of these four um, statements that Karm highlights, it doesn't have to really be um, insidious. It doesn't have to be... What we call like inflammatory, it can really be kind of um, well-meaning, kind of lovingly, gently uh, suggested. You know the truths behind these particular statements, and it kind of can be kind of soft-sold. You know, in other words, it can it can be made to sound entirely palatable or um, acceptable. Uh, You know, it's it, it it's not too. Uh, hard to stomach as as it were and so you hear circum uh, you hear uh sermons taught that hey you know circumcision had its time physical circumcision was great in its time it had its purpose but now and then we use x amount of verses to prove this but now heart circumcision is what god's all about right physical circumcision is important but but you know it's it's really not what's most important to God so these are the sentiments that are um kind of uh, tossed around in order to kind of sell this program or this 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 um, um, product known as replacement theology. And Karm concludes by saying, so in replacement theology, the church has replaced Israel as the primary means by which the world is blessed by God's work. Um, and in so doing, God had his... Had his his hopes in Israel. He was really um, anticipating that they would be utilized to carry the gospel forward and to bless the world and to bring about um, the betterment of human humanity and in so many different ways. But because of that, that, that death blow that israel brought upon themselves by rejecting jesus you know gosh god had to he had no choice wringing his hands in heaven right what can i what should i do what should I do israel such a failure right such a, a failed and flawed product what do i do what do we do ah the light bulb goes off inside god's mind I know what I'll do. I'll bring in a new people group, and the plans won't fail. the you know, The show must go on. God said to himself, "I'll bring in a new people group, and they won't fail me this time." And so, you know, the rest is history, so to say. So, of course, I'm being somewhat kind of facetious in the way I'm describing it. I'm I'm kind of speaking in in um uh you know, over-accentuated, you know, uh, what do we call it, Um, hyperbole. Um, I'm I'm overstating uh, the problem, but um, I'm doing so uh, for a reason. I'm trying to get you to understand that most Christians today wouldn't just outright say, well, of course God replaced Israel with the church. Uh, Isn't it too obvious when you read the Bible? Most Christians are probably not ready to take that stance, um, but... If you talk to them, well, where does the law of Moses fit in? Where does circumcision fit in? Where does um, uh, the land of Israel play into um, the gospel message? Well, then, it's hard for many Christians to come up with solid answers that are biblically rooted and still, um, uh, how should we say, uh, uh, bring the truth of the text to the forefront uh, and... and and. Um, uh, uh reject replacement theology it's it's difficult to 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 um interpret the bible that way so i think we'll call it quits right now for this part of the study um leaving room for the other two major parts of the study number one we've got part two a section segment two with the um uh, uh, the Shema study, the uh, exploring the Shema discussions on these issues of Trinity, and then I got to leave a lot more time tonight for the um, liturgy, since that's a significant part of the study. So uh, that'll do it now for um, uh, the Matthew nine fourteen through seventeen study. We'll again work our way through this, pick this up next week, and keep going. But this is episode number one, right, uh, of this particular new study. So I hope you enjoyed it. These are the live internet studies. Let me just give you some brief announcements, real quick. Um, My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. I'm a tour teacher at a real-life congregation in Thornton, Colorado. Que the Harvest Congregation, is um, a place that you can really visit. You can also find us online at graftedin.com if you prefer not to get out and about just yet. You're not feeling quite safe because of uh, COVID just yet. Um, If you don't care to get out, at least um, go to our website at graftynet.com and avail yourself of the YouTube videos that we are posting from the live sermons. These live internet studies are brought to you uh, week after week, um, and they are a part of my, uh, personal ministry resources, which are available at com. Let me spell that out for you one more time. It's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. From the homepage of my website, you can see all of the links that are, uh, clustered there right at the very top of the page. Just click on, this is not the exhaustive list, but this is kind of like the major index of most of the studies, to include the one we just started on um, an examination of Matthew 9, 14 through 17. So I hope you'll continue with us through that particular study as we go through it week by week. Another major resource that I make available for you online is my YouTube channel. Find me online at youtube.com forward slash c for the word channel forward slash ministries and just avail yourself of all the videos that I post Daily. Yes, you heard me right. I'm uploading something daily to my YouTube channel. So make sure you subscribe so that you are in the know. Make sure you hit the little bell for notifications on your, um, device so you know when I'm uploading videos. Hit the little thumbs up if you like the content. Um, share comments and questions and corrections with me on my videos and, um, uh, what was the, f- the fifth thing? Uh, subscribe, hit the bell, leave a thumbs up, leave comments, and share the content with your friends and family. You hit the little like arrow that lets you share the content with, with other people in your social circles. I think that'll do it for you. These are the live internet studies, and as I mentioned, they're brought to you week after week. Let me give some brief logistical information. This is episode number one hundred and sixty-nine for the meeting date of February fifth, twenty twenty-two, USA date. We meet each Saturday afternoon from five p.m. to approximately six p.m. The hour-long study is broken up into two main segments. Segment one, 30 minutes, an examination of Matthew nine fourteen through seventeen, our Judaism and Christianity. Incompatible with one another. We're in part one tonight. The second segment is exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Paper three: Who, what is the Holy Spirit? We're in part 101 tonight. We've got a YouTube video that we should be watching tonight, uh, taken from my uh, short question, short answer live series. And the question is: What does the Bible mean when it refers to a remnant? So hope you can stick around for that uh, video tonight. Um, If you'd like to join me live each week, each Saturday late afternoon, you need to get access to Skype somehow. If you go to my website at tatesator.com, click the blue link that says Skype on my website. Right now, it'll launch the uh, live internet study right then and there. If we're meeting right then and there, then it'll just uh, connect you through your browser right to the live study. So hope you can join us uh, one of these evenings uh, for this live internet study. And then... Just before I go, um, take a moment to scroll down to the bottom of my website, to that black section where you see some uh, Hebrew writing, and uh, notice that little yellow donate button. Uh, This is an opportunity for you to bless me in my ministry and to help me out. If the Lord is laying it on your heart to be a blessing to me, this is the way you can do it. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. And let's just jump right into the study. Let me jump, uh, scroll down, and we're ready to start a new section tonight. We just finished um, uh, Who or What is the Holy Spirit? Who or What Spirit is Indwelling Believers? And in that section, we kind of toyed around with this idea that if the Bible describes the Spirit as taking a residency within, within us as believers, um, should we even be thinking about who, which person is inside of us? Is it, you know, if you're a Trinitarian, you know, it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So, humorously, we ask the question, which one of those spirits is inside of us? Is it the Spirit of God? Is it the Spirit of Christ? Or is it the Holy Spirit himself who lives inside of us? And really, it's a ridiculous question, because the Bible actually gives us v- uh, verbiage that really just shows us that it's one God. Who lives inside of us it. it's not three different spirits as if um god was like uh, compartmentalized in that fashion and i even humorously equipped d- uh, that there's really there really be four spirits there because there's god's three separate spirits and then there's ariel he still lives in there as well right he doesn't get displaced when the holy spirit comes to move in so um hope you enjoyed that section and i hope you weren't too offended by my kind of somewhat Uh, ridiculous questions. But now we're ready to turn to section 4 and begin to get more kind of theologically uh, oriented and a little bit more serious. Not that the section 3 was not serious, but um, less humorously uh, worded. The the question this time is, who or what is the Holy Spirit, the Filioque debate, Eastern Orthodoxy, the Latter-day Saints, and Social Trinitarian thoughts? Now, it's a long title, but it just indicates that we're going to be talking about all of those different topics and try to draw some um, helpful information from that. This is a discu- These discussions on the natures of Trinity are meant to challenge us as Trinitarians and Unitarians to have meaningful dialogue with one another. We're not here to slam each other and to seek to show how ridiculous it is to think of God as a triune being any more than it's ridiculous to think of God as a singular being who cannot be identified as uh, as a triune God. What we're simply trying to do at the end of the day is to give the Bible its due credit and its due weight and to walk away from um, our study of the Bible with an understanding that is honest with the text and allows the text to speak for itself. So we have these particular discussions. Who or what is the Holy Spirit? This is a three part study and the first major paper was on um, who is God, or what is God? The second major paper was on Yahweh and Yeshua, or God the Father and Yeshua, and talked about issues related to the incarnation and um, uh, you know the dual natures of Messiah and things like that. And now we're finally in paper three: Who or what is the Holy Spirit? So let's begin to entertain these discussions on this term known as the filioque debate, and then we'll we'll move from there into Eastern Orthodoxy as opposed to or. Contra, um, compared with, contrasted with um, uh, Roman Catholicism and things like that, as it's important to the Holy Spirit topic, right? We're not, this is not going to be some um, encyclopedic treat, treatment of all of Eastern Orthodoxy and all of its history and things like that. That's not where we're going with this study. All of this is within the scope of Holy Spirit debate, right? Um, we'll also bring in the Latter-day Saints um, and talk about their perspective on Holy Spirit. And then in this particular section, we'll finish up with Social Trinitarian thoughts. In case you don't know what Social Trinitarianism is, just stick around and will explain it. All right, so let's jump into my commentary. First thing I say is, okay, it's time to get a little bit technical once more, right? Um, I always have to lay out the uh, terminology before I get started. Otherwise, people are going to get lost in my study and don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) So let's jump in like this. Here's what I have to say. In order to fully appreciate where the role of the holy spirit falls in regards to various modern day trinity models what we need to do i say is to digress a bit about one of the trinity theories that arose historically out of the first council of nicaea in 8325 as well as some of its later west versus east theological and philosophical discussions on God's nature over 600 years later. So we're trying to lay the groundwork. History is a good place to start when we're having these discussions on the issues of Trinity obviously we 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 are always going to come back to scripture, but it's helpful to know that these debates that we have in modern times of Unitarian versus Trinitarian and and all of the modern um denominations of Christianity you know latter day saints versus Mormonism versus um Baptist versus Lutheran versus you know Pentecostal one day um uh, one day <laughs> oneness Pentecostal and things like that all of these different perspectives all have a history, a shared history, that traces its its um, their roots all the way back to the earliest days of um, early Christianity. And so that's why history helps us out. I'm not saying that history has all the answers, but it's helpful to know that many of these discussions and debates have already had their day. They're just kind of coming back around again. It's like the old saying, there's nothing new under the sun. Here's what I say in my commentary. To be sure, many mainstream Protestant Christians might actually find it surprisingly relevant to be familiar with what a major cultic Christian group, now that's said in quotes because they themselves would not call themselves a cult, but a major cultic Christian group teaches concerning the Holy Spirit. For instance, we're going to be talking about what do the Latter-day Saints have to say. Now, many Christians might say, I don't really care what the perspective is from the Latter-day Saints. Ah, but you actually might want to care what some of them have to say, especially if you're not prepared to open into any dialogue with them if they knock on your door. Now, of course, you could easily just shut the door and say, I don't want to talk with you guys. Go away. But, You'd be surprised how fast-growing some of these quote-unquote cultic Christian groups are these days precisely because many well-meaning Christians simply don't prepare themselves to have discussions with them and they're drawn into their dialogue uh, curiously or unsuspecting Christians are um, brought to a place where they feel like they've been defeated theologically by uh, the discussions that these um, Christian groups bring to their doors. So um, it's helpful to have a, a bit of a perspective on what they believe. At least if it's if it, if not, at least for the sake of kind of um, preparing yourself uh, uh, against their theology, kind of uh, gearing up, um, kind of um, building up a defense uh even if it's just a light defense against them right having a little bit of uh, foresight or insight into what what they're even going to talk about can can go a long way so i say um this discussion, especially uh, as it concerns today's ongoing dialogue between Trinitarians and Unitarians, is the type of discussion that I say is well worth your effort to look into. I'm not saying you've got to become an expert on what the Jehovah's Witnesses or Latter-day Saints or any other non-Trinitarian group teaches about the Spirit, but I'm simply saying that um, take some time um, out of your busy schedule uh, some day, some week, and just read an article or two about what other denominational aspects are concerning uh, Trinity and those types of discussions. And um, just be aware that the these people could come knocking on your door, and they might not persuade you. You might say, no, I'll never be swayed. But who knows? They might persuade your wife, or your husband, or your children, right? or your relatives. They might turn them, you know, you know before you know it, you hear the news, hey, did you hear that uncle so-and-so became a, a latter-day saint hey did you hear that that aunt so so uh uh joined the uh the, the the um the mormon church down the street she became a jehovah's witness and you're thinking what she was raised as a Christian her whole life. She was a good, good standing Baptist. Why did she become a Mormon? Why did she turn to that, those cultic Christian groups? Ah, it's because perhaps she wasn't prepared. She didn't know what they, what they believed. And so when they hit her with their theology, and they were peddling their wares at, you know, at their doors, at her door, uh, she was unprepared. And she, she considered it, and it sounded pretty good. And next thing you know, she's going to their meetings and joining their church. So it can happen. All right. I'm not saying it's, it's going to happen every case, but uh, just follow along. Oops, didn't mean to do that. There we go. I say in my commentary specifically in this paragraph section. What I want to do is to eventually discuss the Trinity theory. ...of the modern Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. LDS or the Mormons, right? So LDS or Latter-day Saints or Mormons. I understand the term Mormon is slightly pejorative, slightly offensive to Latter-day Saints or LDS folks. Um, not all um, Latter-day Saints believers... Uh, take offense at the word Mormon, um, but some do. And so that's why I'm listing the, the different names there. And so I'm probably not just going to say the JWs or the Mormons because it sounds very negative, sounds very pejorative, sounds very condescending, uh, sounds very... um a a slight bit inflammatory Uh, you know the jw's the mormons it's about as bad as saying the jews we don't want to use terms that are openly offensive to people uh, even if we disagree with their theology so more often than not in the study i'm going to say either the latter-day saints or lds um mormon is there just for reference sake but you guys understand what i'm trying to say there okay so We're going to look at the Trinitarian um, discussions as seen through the lens of social Trinitarianism. And social Trinitarianism is probably something you're not familiar with, but I already mentioned it in my study months ago. And so that's why I say it's a bit of a digression. We mentioned it uh, earlier on in probably part two two of this, paper two of this particular study. So if you're not familiar, you can go back there. Otherwise, you can just do a Google search for social Trinitarianism. Uh, But don't worry, we'll get to it eventually. Um, I say in my commentary, however, a quick Wikipedia take on Eastern Greek Orthodoxy beliefs is in order first. So it sounds like I'm going all over the place, but I'm not. There's actually an order to where I'm going to be going in this discussion. Why I started with Eastern Orthodoxy excuse me, Eastern Orthodoxy and then moved on uh, towards um, the Latter-day Saints discussions and then into Social Trinitarianism. They kind of build on one another's uh, uh, The reason why I went in that direction. So, uh, let's quote Wikipedia first. Not that they are the 100% most reliable source, but they have some good things to offer, and they they present what I like to interpret as a a kind of rudimentary perspective on many topics, and not to mention one of their main strengths is the fact that they're kind of crowdsourced when it comes to um, pulling their information when presenting it, meaning it's not monopolized by one group with an overarching um, particular political or religious or historical bias on any given topic, instead by allowing multiple people from anywhere around the world to contribute to their ongoing Wikipedia, uh, encyclopedia of information, then you're allowed to uh, um, uh, experience the perspective of many different um viewpoints uh, so that's not so always one-sided like you might pick up if you just um, uh, went to maybe like one theology website or like a, a, a you know a, a protestant resource on the topic or a catholic resource or something like that wikipedia it's at least going to be a little bit more neutral in that regard so let's read what they have to say about eastern orthodoxy here's what they say in eastern orthodoxy theology starts with the father hypostasis not the essence of God, since the Father is the God of the Old Testament. So notice that this perspective on understanding who God is and appreciating God as a being um, starts not with trying to figure out, is God one, is he two, is he three? Right? It doesn't start with the essence of God. It actually starts with the understanding that God is the Father. He's this... Um, being who is, oh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just let the, uh, uh, Wikipedia say it for themselves. He's the father. That is the father is the origin of all things. And this in their theology is the basis and starting point of the Orthodox Trinitarian teaching of one God in father, one God of the essence of the father. Like they say, as the uncreated comes as the uncreated comes from the Father, as this is what the Father is. So um, this doesn't sound too terribly different than ultimately theology that's shared by Trinitarians, right? I mean, I'm a Trinitarian. I don't claim to be an Orthodox uh, Christian or a Greek Orthodox or anything like that. But I do also affirm the fact that the Father, God, is the origin of all things. I do believe that he is the starting point if you think about it theologically when we're talking about discussions on uh yeshua's ministry and the um pouring out of the holy spirit and the working of the holy spirit among uh humans and things like that god is the um uncontested the undisputed origin right god is the god the father is one who sends yeshua into the world to Uh, perform his ministry, to do the miracles. Over and over again, when you're reading through Yeshua's words uh, in the Gospels, he, he repeatedly points back to the Father as the one who is orchestrating and driving the program the one who's leading the program the one whose will that Yeshua is submitting himself to uh, as the Son of Man, as the Messiah sent to humanity so um, there's nothing wrong with stating that the Father is the origin of all things Um, the Holy Spirit is likewise sent from the Father as well as the Son Right? we're getting to that aspect when we talk about the filioque debate but the idea is that if we look to God the Father as the the buck stops here sort of concept, then we're not entirely wrong. That's a good place to start. And that's basically what Eastern Orthodoxy is trying to convey. Uh, Wikipedia continues, in Eastern Orthodox theology, God's uncreatedness or being or essence the hope, the the ousia is how it's mis- mentioned this is the very statement that they use the essence in greek is actually called ousia ousia and it refers to this the nature of god the being the essence of this is an ontological question right the ousia of god uh, what is god made up of what's his essence um, what's his comp- composition um, you know I, how is he put together? They go on to say, uh, Wikipedia goes on to say, Jesus Christ is the son, right, the God-man of the uncreated father, God. He's the son of the uncreated father. This is not saying that Jesus is created, but it does root the son's um. Uh, i'm I'm trying to avoid the word origin or being but it, it roots his 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 identity in as that which is rooted in of the father so as we read through the bible uh particularly when we get to john's gospel and we talk about in the beginning was the word the word was god and the word was god it's this uncreated word who was with god and was god and yet this uncreated word is spoken of as the only begotten of God as well. And so the language of the Bible lends itself to helping us to understand the the, the roles and functions and purposes of the triune God as regards where does God the Father fit in into the hierarchy? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Which one has preeminence in the sense of authority. Well, if you read your Bible accurately, you should come to the conclusion that it's God the Father. And the proof is, of course, that the Son, um, even by his very title, Son, is, I'm using air quotes with my fingers, he's a product of the Father. He's His identity is, is rooted in the Father. In fact, Th- th- their their um, identities work together. If there was no father, there would be no son. And if there was no son, there would be no father. How can God be an eternal father if he has no offspring? And how can Yeshua call himself the son if there's no father to speak of? Understand what I mean? If God was God alone and there was no son, could we rightly call God a father? If there were no offspring to speak of, if there was no son ever, if there was no son of man, if Jesus never existed, well, then the word father is misleading. The title is misleading. And likewise, the son, um, the, the fact that Jesus is a son is proof that there is a parent somewhere in the picture because the word son, last time I checked, implies parenting, right? So, let's keep going. Uh, uh, Wikipedia concludes by saying, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the uncreated Father God. So, this is the um, kind of manner in which Orthodox Trinitarianism um, has its discussions on issues related to Trinity. Um, They're going to... Typically, I'm not saying this is across the board, and probably not every Orthodox Christian speaks this way, but if we use history as our uh, starting point, we can see that this is something that's relevant to them. God is the uncreated God, yet he's the eternal father he's not just this generic god who's disconnected from his title of father the 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 title father there is a is an essential part of his of his usia of his nature that's the uh, point that um an orthodox trinitarian would uh bring up and so i think i will stop there uh, we'll pick this up next week. We'll make the study just a little bit shorter than it normally is. Normally I'm, I can p- uh, plug out 25 or even maybe 30 minutes of Trinity, but I want to leave room for the, um, uh, the uh, 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 liturgy uh, for tonight. So that'll do it for Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. Let's turn to our liturgy for tonight. Um, this is a continuation of what we looked at last week, Jeremiah 31, 31. We read the passage about how that God is promising to Israel that there's one day going to be a new covenant, a Brit chadasha And go back and listen to last week's study or follow my YouTube channel where I have the... Um, uh, liturgy sections that are separated. In fact, if I go back over to my um, channel, you'll see, let's see, uh, popular uploads, live the studies. Let me click on videos for a second, and you can see it's right there. See the uh, Hebrew and Greek Bible, Bible liturgy insights from Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one that I posted uh, six days ago? That's the study that I'd like you to go back and listen to. So let's continue. We're basically, for the next four or five liturgy sections, we're going to work our way through Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. So we'll hit all four verses. And their New Testament counterparts, which are Hebrews 8, uh, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, and 12. So those 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, those five verses out of the New Testament corresponding with the um, four verses out of the Old Testament, or out of the Tanakh. So, we read verse 31 last week, the New Covenant we're introducing, and we did a little mini-word study on, on the word hadasha. Go back and listen to that. Let's read now the uh, verse 32 and talk about that continuing in this um prophecy jeremiah says not like the covenant that i made with her forefathers or with their fathers on the day when i took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of egypt my covenant that they broke though i was their husband declares the lord okay that's the english esv we're going to be looking tonight at this word uh covenant again um we already really looked at mostly at covenant bricha or new last week but now let's look at the word covenant let's focus on that word let's uh jump over to the um hebrew on the uh right side of the page the hebrew says lo chabrit asher karati et avotam b'yom hecheziki b'yadam l'chutzim mi'eretz mitzla'im asher hema heferu et and the word for covenant um, that we're highlighting, right, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, is right there in the Hebrew, Chabrit, um, it's really just the that part right there. The word Brit, Brit. And um, let's look at this just briefly. Strong's number 1285, uh, Brit. Let me blow that up a little bit on your screen. And using the Hebrew Strong's Concordance, the um, definition simply says a covenant. Right, like, well, what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is a covenant. Later on, when we get to the Strong's corresponding Greek number for the Greek word... Uh, for covenant uh, DSAK, we're going to see that it's going to kind of flesh out a little bit more um, definitions. But basically, we can fill in using English words. Uh, like if I were to take the word covenant there and pull up a... Um, let's see if I can blow that up for you. I-, I don't like that. <laughs> let's try it like that. Um, the word covenant in... Um, uh, The word covenant, according to just a standard kind of dictionary definition, Google's definition, is a contract drawn up by deed. Um, Synonyms include compact, or treaty, or pact, or accord, or deal, or settlement, um, a guarantee, um, a promise, a bond. Uh, They go on to describe it as a clause in a contract, an agreement which brings about a relationship of commitment between God and his people the jewish faith they say is based on the biblical covenants made with abraham moses and david so this is just a very kind of generic all-purpose word that we could use to describe a covenant obviously from god's perspective it's some type of promise that he's made between himself and another party but what's uh important for israel is that god uh, vocalizes or spells out or articulates the promises and the stipulations of his disagreement with Israel and he puts it into writing so that the Covenant is not just God spoken promised Israel it now becomes a written declaration it now becomes something that that Israel can um, reference over and over again uh, as they read the words and the pages uh, the, the you know the the outline of the Covenant agreement. Okay, so having that as our starting point, let's launch now into Hebrews chapter 8. This is the longest uh, continuing uh, quote from the Tanakh, as I mentioned earlier. So let's uh, pick up where we left off last week. We already looked at verse 8, um, where the writer to the book of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31.31. 31, and we looked at the the word new there. and We talked about how that when, when Jeremiah says that I'm going to make a new covenant with Israel... Um, He could be invoking um, a renewal of an existing covenant, like the Mosaic Covenant brought back into renewed purpose and and, uh, a refreshed uh, state of use. So that we could turn that term "new" into "renewed," but given the nature of the rest of the um, promise about how the radical uh, change of Israel from the inside out as a corporate people, it's better to understand that word "new" as 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 in something that's um, never before happened. Indeed. When we finally sit back and look at this passage as a whole, uh, this promise in, in uh, Jeremiah 31 as well as Hebrews, we see that there's a significant part of the new covenant that has not taken place yet. It's still awaiting a future fulfillment. So it's it's so new that it hasn't even come out yet, right? It's still on the assembly line or, or wherever God has it. He's working it out. Um, and yet on the other hand, there's an aspect of new covenant that is available for anyone who places their genuine faith in the New Covenant anchor, the New Covenant um, found, uh, founder, the New Covenant um, uh, guarantor, which we know, of course, to be Christ himself, Yeshua. So let's keep moving through this promise. We already read Hebrews chapter 8 last week. Let's now move on to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 9. Um Uh, The verse says, quote, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now, if you didn't catch it, there are some minor variants wordings in the way the writer to the book of Hebrews quotes the passage. And there's one significant difference in the um, quote from Jeremiah that's carried over into the New Testament version here, the Greek version, which we'll look at here momentarily. But first, let's read the Greek. Um, yeah, let's start here. The Greek says, U kata ten diavekenhen epoiesa tois <laughs> patrasin auton in himera Epalabamanu mu tes keros auton. He continues, exagagain autus, ek aguptu, hati autoi, uk enemenon, en te diatheke mu, kago emelisa auton lege kurias. And that's the Greek rendering. Now, let's compare. Just briefly before we continue to um, exegete, let's compare resources. Let's take the Greek rendering from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 9, and compare it against the Septuagint Greek rendering from L- Jeremiah 31 32. Remember, the Septuagint, the LXX, is the early Greek translation from the Masoretic. Hebrew. It's one of the earliest translations of the Tanakh into a different language, uh, and it showed up on the scene, in, you know, 200 or so years even prior to the times of the New Testament or the Gospel era or the times of Jesus and the apostles and things like that. So let's see what they have to say. First on my screen, what you see is a. Um, oops, don't want to do that. First, what you see is a kind of uh, modified King James version from this website resource, Greek doc dot. Calm. and it reads the verse not according to the covenant that I made with their for with their I keep saying forefathers I apologize with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of egypt which my covenant they broke although I was husband unto them says the Lord and then once again in the middle of the screen we have the uh, Hebrew once more Heferu. Et briti anoki ba'altivam umadonai. But then significant for us is that we now have a rendering from the uh, Greek or uh, from the. Uh, uh, Hebrew into Greek and the Greek says and it should sound very familiar it's, it should sound almost identical to the uh, Greek New Testament we just read a moment ago which some minor changes but which I'll highlight here in a second but let me read the Greek first the Greek says u kata tein diathekein hein diathe twice patrasin auton in himera mu keros keras exagagain autus ek geis Iguptu. Hati altoi uk enemenon in te diatheke mu kai ego emelesa auton facen kurias. All right, and there's another Greek rendering right over to the very right of it. It's just the, uh, a different manuscript family, but as far as I can tell, it is almost word for word identical without any um, difference, uh, even in case. Uh, from the one we just read, so I'm not—I don't—I don't have to read the uh, the Greek over on the right side of the page. It's the same, but I do want to um, bring in the um... the English uh, translation of the Greek. So this is a ring English translation from the Greek of the Septuagint, which reads, "Not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took hold of their hand, the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they abode not in my covenant." And I disregarded them, says the Lord. All right, so you're probably beginning to see that there are some differences here. Before we jump into the difference, let me highlight the word for um, uh, covenant that we're looking at, as I mentioned. In the Hebrew, it was brit, but in the Greek, it's this red word right here, diathekane, which uh, in uh, the Hebrew's rendering, it showed up right... There, let me see if I can blow that up for you. There we go. It's the word that's highlighted, diatheking, right? If I hover my mouse over, it actually just tells me covenant. So this is um, Strong's number 1242. Let's see what this word has to say. So if we click on the, uh, the definition here, we end up with this Strong's Concordance definition of Strong's number 1242. Um, Diatheke, testament, will covenant it's a feminine noun and uh it can be translated as testament or will or covenant the usages have a covenant between two parties the ordinary everyday sense found a countless number of times in uh papri a will or a testament so uh it's just a kind of a generic word for agreement or uh you know contract um It's rooted in the word for uh, to set in place, to theme. So, this is a a familiar word to us, right? Um, It is sometimes translated as testament. And that's where it gets a little either challenging or confusing is that we think of testament and we think of some body of writing. So, we say we're New Testament Christians. And that kind of instantly evokes this idea in our mind of a body of writing. So the, the part of your Bible from Matthew to Revelation, you think of New Testament. But when God was talking to Israel through the mouth of the prophet in Jeremiah, and he said, I'm going to make a Berit a DFA King Kainain, a new testament a new covenant he wasn't necessarily envisioning i'm going to create this new body of literature for you israel that you're going to have to one day somehow sit down and read for yourself i'm not going to create this new um part of your bible that you never heard of before that's not really what the word covenant or DFAK was trying to or breed was trying to envision it was more rooted in the idea of a contractual agreement between god and his people israel it is a contract that was spelled out eventually in the pages of both the tanakh and the Apostolic Scriptures, the New Testament writings that we carry, this is true, but I don't want you to think that that's primarily the way that the, the word covenant was to be um, interacted with from the Jewish people. They weren't supposed to be thinking, when is this new body of literature going to come out? When can I? Where can I go buy it? Where where can I download that to my smartphone so I can read it, right? Um, that's not what's going on. It's unfortunate that by today's Christian standards, when we hear the word New Testament, the first thing that pops into my mind is the part of the Bible that's separate and distinct from the Old Testament. We don't even think anymore that this is a contractual agreement between Israel. We've lost that understanding, for the most part, in Christian circles. We don't think that way. We think New Testament means the part of the Bible starts with Matthew. And... Um, I'm trying to move us away i'm not saying don't give don't misunderstand me don't misquote me i'm not saying it's wrong to call the new testament part of your bible the new covenant or vice versa i'm not trying to minimize the importance of that part of your bible i'm not trying to say that um it's entirely wrong to call that the new testament i'm simply trying to Put the words back into their historical context and give us an appreciation from history first before we launch into our own understandings. Now, the the two significant differences um, in this particular uh, rendering from Jeremiah to over into Hebrews and rendered from the Septuagint is captured by Tim Haig in his commentary to the book of Hebrews. Um, let me read this for you real quick. He says, quote, the more significant variant is found in the Septuagint and copied by the author of hebrews as well and this pertains to the final clause of our verse the hebrew he says has ba'anochi ba'altivam adonai which reads in English as, and I was a husband to them, declares Adonai. The LXX, which is the Septuagint, however, as well as the Greek of our Hebrews text, right? So both resources, both the writer to the book of Hebrews, as well as the Septuagint translation into Greek, they both make a significant variant, which is reflected in the English. So um, the Greek of Hebrews literally has kago, he." um a autone lege curias. Let me read that one more time. Kago emalesa autone lege curias, And that's from the Hebrew text. I think the uh, the Septuagint has um, instead of kago, let me go back and pull it up, it has um kai ego, a melea autone, face in curias. So some slight differences, uh, instead of lege curias, it has face in curios, which as you'll Begin to understand it's not too terribly different, but this phrase, um, uh, uh the, the, that I was a husband to them, uh, instead of saying, uh, uh, and I was neglecting them. That's a big difference. So listen to what Tim Hag has to say. He says, quote, the NASBs and I did not care for them, says the Lord, in quote, might be misunderstood and our misunderstood in our modern English for the expression I do not care for in colloquial English means I don't like something. Understand what I mean there? Um, so when I say I don't care for something, it means I don't like it, right? Like like, like if I say I don't care for celery. This is a true statement. I don't care for celery. It means I don't like it. I don't like celery. I don't like eating ants on a log, which I think is a, a, a piece of celery with some peanut butter spread on top with, um, uh, what is it, um, raisins sitting on top of the peanut butter. I think that's what they call ants on a log. I don't care for celery and I don't care for raisins. What does this mean? It means I don't like them. That's what it means. So the NASB says, I don't care for, well, you know, I didn't care for them. It doesn't mean that God doesn't like them. But the NSB, what, it, what Tim Hake continues, the NSB intends us to read the word care in the sense of attend to or take care of. And thus gives a sense of the Greek verb um, amaleo, which means to neglect or to not attend or care for, for someone. Interestingly, the Peshitta, which is Aramaic, has um, "basi," which means to despise or indicating, uh, I'm sorry, "basi," which indicates that the Peshitta Uh, that the Syriac translators were actually translating not from the Masoretic Hebrew, but from the Septuagint Greek LXX, when they were translating their translation. The Vulgate, which is Latin, however, understands the phrase in line with the Masoretic text, quote, and I was a husband to them. So uh, it's, it's, it's well worth knowing that different translations rely on different source texts uh, you know, different um, origin texts, whether they're translated from the Hebrew or the Greek. Hegg continues, some older commentators based upon a supposed uh, connection with an Arabic root Arabic root, seek to find the meaning, quote, to look down upon, despise, because the Hebrew word Baal, referencing the lexicon by um, Gesenius, and thus suggests that the Hebrew of Jeremiah is more properly understood by the Septuagint, to be that same reference, right? Va'al or Ba'al in the Hebrew. However, Tim Haig notes, it's more likely that the Septuagint read of, of um, Ga'alti from the Greek, I despised for Ba'alti. I was a husband. So we had a scribal error or a, a gloss, uh, a mistranslation likely from the Hebrew into the greek right so the translators of the septuagint were reading baalti with a bet but they mistranslated it with a a gemel as gaalti and they turned i was a husband into i despise and the syriac was using the translation from the septuagint at the same point for its translation and that's why it ends up with the same kind of i was despised or i despised translation um in it coming full circle to the Greek out of Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews, that our author followed the Septuagint in his quote, right? Because he puts "I despise" rather than saying "I was a husband." It doesn't it doesn't drastically alter the general sense of the text, nor its use by our author in substituting his thesis. So that that's a little technical for most of you, but it just goes on to say that um, um, when it gets down to to some of these words. Um, um, Emelisa, I—I'm oh, sorry. Himelesa, uh, the Greek word here. Let me highlight it here for you. This Greek word, Emelisa, um, Emelisa, or Emelisa—I'm not sure exactly where the stress is. I think it's Emelisa. This Greek word should be saying—it should have said, "I was a husband to them," in some Greek counterpart there. But instead of the possible error of translating um, Baalti. Right here, uh, I was a husband to them. Instead of Baalti mistranslating that very first letter bet as a gimel as a G letter and ending up with the word Galti, then we ended up with despising instead of a husband, something like that. That's that's kind of what Timmy is trying to get at. But germane to our study is this word uh, covenant. And in conclusion to the um, uh, uh, the. Um, A liturgy for tonight, I was going to highlight um, what what does a modern rabbi think about this phrase new covenant? What does he think the word new covenant refers to? But I'm running short on time, so I'll forego that tonight. Instead, uh, we'll pick this up next week where we'll continue asking these questions about Jeremiah's promises here as they've been repeated for us in the new testament in in the uh, book of hebrews what does it mean that the covenant is new what does it mean that a, of a covenant what is what does the word covenant imply and how is this promise given in jeremiah to be understood by the people of israel both in in jeremiah's day and in paul's day or the writer right to the book of hebrews day around the same time period when when the letter was written and how should it be understood by today's believers and Bible students okay and that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight let's dismiss in prayer I bless your name and thank you for the study I thank you for the students I thank you for the participation those who are able to join me week after week either live or after the fact during the YouTube studies and during the live uh the um, podcasts that are uploaded to iTunes. Thank you for the insights that are shared to me via email week after week by other well meaning Bible students. I would not be able to have the opportunity to grow as much if it were not for the insights that other people uh share with me. So thank you for um uh, allowing them to participate, allowing all of us to participate together in this uh, worldwide Bible study. Bless you, Father, for your faithfulness, for your uh, generosity, for your kindness, for your compassion, for your healing uh, for the people in our midst that we prayed about last week. Uh, continue to strengthen us and carry us along by your Spirit, and we'll be careful to give the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua, Amen. <music>